Times podcast. We are, I think, up to, up to episode four in our Re- Revelation series. We are looking at Revelation chapter three today. This is the second part in our look and exploration of, if you will, the letters to the seven churches that Jesus gave to John to give to us. So last week we looked at the first four churches, which was Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira. And this week we're looking at Sardis, Philadelphia, and the seventh one, Laodicea. Now by way of reminder, I want to remind you guys that these letters to the churches, to the seven churches, are relevant for us today, just as much as are relevant for the seven literal churches in those seven regions in Asia Minor. The letter was written to those seven churches uh, for that time. It was, it's also written and relevant to every church across all time. So that's us now. We can draw uh, relevance and teaching from each uh, of these letters like we can from Ephes- uh, the letter to Ephesians uh, by Paul, Philippians, Thessalonians, Romans, and on it goes. These are for us now. The other interesting thing about the seven letters to the seven churches is that it picks up the church uh, at different stages throughout the church's history. The first uh, century church being Ephesus through to Smyrna in the second and third century, through to Pergamos being the state church under Constantine, through to Thyatira being the, the birth of the Papus and the Roman Catholic Church, through to Sardis, which is our first one today, uh, which is the, the Protestant Church and the Protestant Reformation, through to Philadelphia, which is the church in revival, uh, the, the faithful remnant, uh, the, the generation of the missionary church, if I can put it that way. And then the last one being Laodicea, that is the apostate church, which is the final state of the church before Jesus comes back to pick up his bride and we enter into the tribulation period and the final stages of earth's history. Uh, so today we're picking up Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, kicking off at verse 1. Let us get into it. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, right. Now remember what I said, Protestant Reformation, uh, the Reformed Church, denominational kind of church, uh, just like the Roman Catholic Church, or the letter to Thyatira, this, this actual church still exists. Roman Catholic Church still exists. The Reformed or denominational churches still exist to this day and will continue to. Likewise, the Philadelphian Laodicean. So interestingly, uh, these letters were written to these churches in the order that they appeared. But what we notice is that the last four churches are still around. First three are not, last four are. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things say he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, I know your works. Okay, just by way of reminder, the seven spirits of God uh, is referring to the perfect ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. And we get that from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. I'll just turn there. We looked at this, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, But Isaiah 11, verse 2, speaking about uh, the Messiah to come, will have these things. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Those are the seven, the manifest. Uh, manifestations, if you will, or the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's another way of writing uh, or explaining uh, the perfect works of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, there we have Jesus being referred to. So this is his uh, introduction uh, as the one who has the Holy Spirit of God and the seven stars. Uh, which is referring to the seven pastors of the seven churches. I know your works. 
now, this is particularly interesting because why would Jesus refer to himself in the context of having the Holy Spirit when he's talking to, uh, obviously he's talking to the church of Sardis, but he's talking to the Protestant church or the, the Reformed church of, of our time now. And what I find fascinating is that the work and person of the Holy Spirit is one of the most divisive topics of the uh, Reformed and denominational churches. So many of the things that we're divided on uh, has to do with the work and person ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I find that fascinating. Um, verse, we're still in verse one. Wow, good progress. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. That's interesting. So you have a name, you have a reputation for being alive, for being a living church, an effective church, a functional church. Okay, so we're talking about the Reformed Church here. And they have a reputation for being alive. Why? Because they've been reformed out of the Roman Catholic Church. So surely that's better, right? But what's interesting here, what Jesus says is that they have a name for being alive, but you are in fact dead. This is the dead church. Jesus is referring to the Reformed Church as the dead church. So I just want you to put you on notice. If you attend a Reformed Church, uh, that is a church that teaches Reformed doctrine, you should look into that because Jesus says to you, that church is dead. What you also notice in this letter to this church, there is no commendation at all. It's all rebuke, all exhortation, no commendation. We need to watch that. Verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Interesting that it's referring to there are still some things in that church that are not yet dead, but he finds the works not perfect before God. Okay, so the Reformation, if we, if we look back at, at what happened in the church reforming out of the uh, Roman Catholic Church, it came some ways in terms of, so one of the big shifts was its literal view on parts of Scripture. If you look back at what the Reformers did, that was the big shift. It was a, a shift from a more allegorical view of Scripture, a more uh, spiritual view, if I can put it that way, of, of Scripture or symbolic view, to a more literal interpretation of certain aspects of Scripture. Unfortunately for the reformers and for the church on the whole, they didn't reform far enough. And by that I mean they uh, chose to interpret certain parts of Scripture literally, but chose to leave other parts of Scripture to an allegorical or a spiritual interpretation. And, uh, and so the question begs, and we've discussed this before, uh, who decides what you interpret literally and what you don't? So therein lies the problem. The reformers didn't reform far enough. They didn't, uh, they didn't go to the point of being consistent with their uh, means of interpretation or means of understanding the scriptures. Uh, and the truth is there are great things in the Bible, great doctrines, great truths that are still lost today and that are being lost today. And it says here, I have not found your works perfect before God. Our love for the Lord, our fear, dedication to the Lord, our loyalty, our service, none of these are perfect. And that is what Jesus found in this church. I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Hold fast to the things that are true, that is the things which are not yet dead, and repent of the things that are dead. Repent of the ways in which you've been going, that is not my way, so says Jesus. Therefore, if you will not watch, 
Meaning if you'll not hold fast and repent, if you'll not watch the times that you're in, the direction the church is, if you'll not watch the truth of Scripture, if you'll not watch these things, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is awesome. So Jesus says here, not only are there some things that are not yet dead, that, are, that is, there are some truths within Scripture that you, you are holding on to. Some would also say that that is referring to a godly remnant. But I think the, uh, the, the things that are not, not yet dead, that are ready to, to die, are, are more in relation to uh, teachings that they hold on to. But here in verse 4, we have Jesus specifically mentioning a faithful remnant within this dead church. There are still some genuine overcomers, genuine believers that find themselves in this dead church. Amazing. Both then, at the time that Sardis literally was, was uh, living and alive when John wrote this, but also now there is a remnant in that church. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life. Now just pause there. This is not saying that your name can be blotted from the book of life. Jesus is simply saying that I will not block your name from the blotted out. I, it, it's there. It's not leaving. It's secure. Um, once it's there, it's not coming out, so says Jesus. But I, will, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says, wake up. Are you listening to what I'm saying? Are you in a dead church? Are you in a church that is wholly reformed? There are a few teachings within there that are not yet dead, but are ready to die. It's moving away even further from sound doctrine, from biblical teaching. But there are still, God says, still a godly remnant within that people. I pray that you will wake up. I pray that you are that godly, godly remnant. And I pray that you listen to what Jesus has to say to you and to me. Verse 7, we move on to Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Now, this is my church. And I say that in the context of this is the church that I want to be a part of. This is the church that... Uh, I'm pastoring. So as Jesus writes to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, I pray that our local body in, embodies the church of Philadelphia and that Jesus is writing to me as the pastor and to our church as we live in this apostate age. So my prayer is that this is our church and Jesus is specifically writing to me and to you if you're a part of one of these churches. This is the church in revival. This is the, uh, the generation of the missionary churches in terms of the stage that it first appeared uh, on the scene out of the reformed church moved into the missionary church. The one that, the church that embodied the, the going out and proclaiming the gospel to all the nations. But it's the, the faithful remnant. It's the church in revival, the true church. Um, those that are holding on to the word of God, the true word of God and the entire word of God. And the cool thing about this church is there's no negatives. There's no rebuke. There's only commendation and encouragement. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things, he who is holy he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Okay, so this, this uh, title of Jesus here is fascinating. It's interesting. He's specifically referring to, or it seems like he's specifically referring to, um, 
uh, a reference from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And it's talking about uh, Eliakim. It's talking about uh, a, uh, a, a servant of David who's coming into um, the... Uh, coming into the um, the kingdom, not the kingdom, coming into the uh, royal uh, assembly, if you will. He he will have a role in the the royal um, household, and his role entitled him to complete access to all the wealth of the king. Complete access to the wealth of the king, and and anyone that wanted to have. Uh, a seating with the king um, had to go through this man, Eliakim. And verse 20, uh, 22 of this, and this is the cool thing about the Bible has a near and far fulfillment. So this is talking about Eliakim and his access to the physical wealth of the king, uh, but it's also speaking of uh, the coming Messiah. Uh, so stick with me here and what the coming Messiah has. Verse 22, the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. This is talking about Jesus. As you can see here, has, he titles himself, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. Catch that? The key of the house of David in Isaiah 22. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. In Isaiah, it's talking about Eliakim having access to the physical wealth of the kingdom. Here it's talking about Jesus and having access through him to the spiritual wealth of the kingdom. The entire uh, entirety of Jesus' inheritance is his, but also ours through Christ. He goes on to say, I know your works. Uh, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. It's referring to the same title as Jesus here. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not, uh, not denied my name. This has to be us now. Little strength keeping his word and not denying his name. It doesn't matter how big your church is, how amazing your ministry is, how incredible the work that God has called you to is. Uh, no matter what you're doing for the Lord, on a scale of how many people still are not following Jesus, on the scale of how many people are living in darkness and blindness, in the scale, on the scale of how much persecution uh, in a range of different ways there is against God's people in a in a comparison to how uh, strong we are on the world stage when in terms of Christianity and and the world the reality is we are weak we are worthless our, our work is minuscule the effectiveness of our ministry is minuscule even if you've got a church of 10,000 the work of that church is minuscule compared to the amount of people that are that are destined for an eternity apart from God in hell our works sorry I should say our strength is little for you have a little strength but even in that state Jesus says to this church, you have kept my word. That is his word, his doctrine, his teaching. You have kept it. So for all those people that tell me doctrine is not important, teaching is not important, unity is what is important, I'm sorry. Yes, we want to strive for unity in faith, but not at the expense of truth, not at the expense of true doctrine, of biblical teaching. This church kept his word and have not denied my name, kept his teaching and not, not denied his name in this day that we live in now. This is the church 
that I want to be a pastor of. And this is the church that I want to be a part of. And this is the church that needs to be active and living in this world right now. Verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, a couple of things. We've talked about this uh, synagogue of Satan. We've talked about it specifically referring to the, the Jews, the, the religious Jews who uh, denied their Jewish Messiah. Okay, But we've also talked about the fact that anyone who uh, tries to replace or put themselves in the place of the Jews in terms of receiving the, the blessings and the promises of the Jewish people, those that uh, err towards a replacement theology or some variation of that, I believe this is talking about those people as well. Uh, and I, th I think you could also uh, lump in any false religions uh, or even sects within Christianity, any, any false religions that um, basically take away from, move away from uh, the true Messiah and his word, his biblical teachings, his doctrine that this church has said that they have kept. This is speaking about those people. And I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. These are harsh words. I'm conjecturing about, you know, how far we extrapolate this. But we want to be careful if we're in a sect of Christianity uh, or in a church that teaches uh, replacement. We want to be careful of the religiosity of um, those who deny the Messiah. We want to be careful of being associated with and a part of these churches. Verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which has come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is a promise to the faithful remnant. A promise to the faithful remnant that we will be raptured before the period of time, the hour that the Great Tribulation will come upon the whole world. That is the Great Tribulation that's prophesied time and again throughout Scripture. Notice in verse 10 it says that they will, will be kept from the hour of trial. If you're kept from the time of the trial, that means you can't enter the period of time where that trial is. The, the verbiage, the, the Greek words, it's clear as day. It's keeping out of that whole period of time during which the Great Tribulation, the seven-year Great Tribulation takes place. This is a promise to the faithful remnant of the pre-tribulational rapture of the true church. How incredible a promise this is. Verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly, which means suddenly, which again affirms, it's in the Greek, it means suddenly, which again affirms the imminent rapture of the church, which is a pre-tribulational rapture doctrine. Uh, I'm coming quickly, hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Really important, we understand that the crown is already theirs. They already have it. They already have the crown. Uh, but hold fast that you will not lose that crown. Verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out, to, uh, and he shall go out no more. Oh, just pause there. This, uh, this pillar in the temple of my God. Now, this is interesting. Uh, Laodicea was known for fashion, finance, and pharmaceuticals. It was a rich business uh, city, town. But one thing that this city was also known for is that it went through decades and decades of earthquakes that uh, destroyed parts of the city. And we've talked previously about a massive earthquake that uh, destroyed almost the entire city. Um, so stability on the earth was something that they knew the opposite of they, they knew what it was like to not have stability literally meaning physical stability 
uh, in uh, the temple and the city. And so the, the pillars in the temple of the city, they were not stable. They were not secure. They were, would not endure. They were not forever or everlasting. And they knew that because they keep getting knocked down by these earthquakes. So this is interesting that Jesus uses this here. And there's a reference to these uh, pillars in 1 Kings 7, 15 through 22, worth checking out. Uh, but I believe this is a, a, a clear kind of reference that Jesus is making here. Guys, those pillars in your temple that are not stable now, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple that will come in the future, that will be eternal. You'll never have to leave the temple of my God in the future. He said, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name in that temple, in that city, you will be a permanent fixture. You will not be leaving that city. You will be secure and will spend eternity with me. So says God to the overcomer, to the believer. But you notice that there's no call to repent here to this church. It's a well done for keeping my word. And because of that, I will also keep you. It's incredible. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, listen up. He's not just saying it to the church in Sardis. He's saying it to all of us. If you are one who has little strength, but keep his word and do not deny my name. He is talking to you. He is keeping us and he has many promises for us in the future. It's so beautiful. Verse 14. Let's move on to the uh, Laodicean church. And this, um, this church is the church in the last days. This is the apostate church uh, that we find ourselves in now. Even the word Laodicea, it literally means ruled by the people. And by that, we understand that the people are ruling the church. Who should be ruling the church? Jesus should be ruling the church, not the people. And so already just by name, we know that something's not right here with this church. Um, this church is the church we see all around us now. It's the last day's church. It's the church that is here immediately before uh, the rapture. Now, when, what I mean by that is we still see the Roman Catholic Church. We still see the Protestant churches, the Reformed churches. We still see uh, churches in revival, uh, ones that are... Uh, on mission in their community and, and elsewhere. We still see the apostate churches. Um, but what I want to say is that the Bible teaches the way it lays, lays, lays it out chronologically that uh, on the whole, generally speaking, the church is in apostate. Uh, the, what we know as the local church across the board generally, if we were to generalize, it is a church in apostate. It means it's a church far away from where it needs to be. Um, and to the angel of the church of, of the Laodiceans write, These things say the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the, of the creation of God. What a wonderful title for Jesus. I know your works. Now, this is important. We need to understand that this church, the apostate church, there are no positives for this church. It's all negatives. It's all rebuke. We do not want to be this church. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is the first time that we really get a... a, a uh, an overt disgust or distaste from Jesus in relation to the state of this church. And this is the state of the church that we find ourselves in right now. 
let me um, let me just give you a few things uh, to ponder in relation to the state of the church now. We're running out of time, but stick with me. Uh, forgive me bringing up the church in America, um, but I I'm using them as an example uh, partly because uh, it's a perfect example of the church throughout the world, uh, in the Western world at least, if I can put it that way. Uh, it's also true that Australia in so many ways uh, copy uh, what America does. But it's also true in that as, as I look around at churches within uh, at least our state, uh, I, I would hazard a guess and argue that these same results are true for our state and, our, and for our nation. Now, this is a results from an American worldview inventory in 2022, so only a year ago. It interviewed a thousand pastors. So if you're not a pastor, uh, you're, you're off the hook briefly, but not long. But this is, this is a, a snapshot of the churches in the States, and I would argue the churches in Australia. Interviewed a thousand pastors. Of those thousand, only 37% hold a consistent biblical world view. Remember how before I talked about the reformers and how uh, the reformers uh, were not consistent in their reading of scripture. They reformed some of the doctrines from the Catholic Church to hold some of the scripture literally, but then uh, didn't reform the rest. So it wasn't consistent. Similar in this context in relation to biblical worldview, only 37% of the thousand pastors held a consistent biblical worldview. That's only 370 of the thousand pastors, if my maths is right. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think that's right. Um, all the rest, they blended, uh, I'm going to read you a quote, they blended ideas and applications from a variety of holistic worldviews into a unique but inconsistent combination that represents their personal preferences. They picked and choose what they wanted to believe, both from scripture and from uh, secularism and humanism and this and that and spiritualism. They, they picked and choose. Now, what's interesting is that this percentage reduced to 12% for children and youth pastors. So of that thousand, there uh, it didn't say how many, but there were a number of children and youth pastors. And only 12% of the children and youth pastors that were uh, interviewed held a consistent biblical worldview. Now, what I want to say to you is that this should be shocking to you. And this should be shocking because uh, that uh, my worldview, your worldview, every person's worldview is almost entirely formed by the, the age of 13. By the age of 13, their worldview is formed. And the teenage years and the 20s, those years are years of refining, ultimately. But up until the age of 13, that's really where most of the work happens in relation to forming someone's worldview. And you've got youth and children's pastors that only 12% of them hold a consistent biblical worldview from Genesis to Revelation, looking at what's going on in the world. All the rest, the 88%, pick and choose what they want to believe to suit their selves. Russell Moore, an associate professor of a, a seminary in the States said, true biblical preaching is essential to a congregation holding a biblical worldview. What does he mean by that? All that a pastor must do to ensure that his people embrace an unbiblical worldview is to stop preaching all of the Bible. How true that is of so many churches in Australia. If you don't teach the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, prophets, the Torah, if you don't teach the whole lot, people will hold an unbiblical or embrace an unbiblical worldview. The culture is glad to fill in the rest, but I am optimistic, uh, Moore says, 
when I see churches led by men of God who are afraid of nothing and no one but the Lord and who are willing to shepherd the flock of God with the truth. I pray that that is me. Uh, I pray that that is more pastors. We need to be unafraid of anyone but the Lord in relation to what we teach. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing. Pastors who preach the Bible recognize that the church is not just a collection of religious people. It is a declaration of war on the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. If that is the case, preaching means equipping men and women and children, not just to know something, but to confront the powers of this age with the gospel of a resurrected Christ. Churches that do not preach the whole Bible, churches that only play around with the gospel, the milk of uh, the Bible, if I can put it that way. Churches that, um, that only teach topically, they're missing parts of the Bible. If you only teach topically, you're going to miss stuff. And when you miss stuff, the world will fill in the gaps. And all of a sudden, our biblical worldview is no longer consistent. We're picking and choosing. And that is what 37% of pastors hold to in the States as a sample group, if I can put it that way. Another poll or another study results from a Gallup poll in 2022. This is now random samples of Christian adults. So if you're not a pastor, this is on you now. Okay, pastors are included in this, but this is on you. From a random sample of Christian adults, only 25% of those Christian adults say the Bible is the actual word of God and should be taken literally. Only 25% say that the Bible is the actual word of God and should be taken literally. 58% Say the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Notice the difference. And therefore, not all of the Bible should be taken literally. Careful, that is a slippery slope. That pastors walk and that all Christians slide down. As soon as you don't take all of Scripture literally, you become the dictator of what should and what is and isn't taken literally. And what is and isn't the symbols. And then 16% of Christian adults say that the Bible is simply made up of fables, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. Wow. So 16% of Christians in this uh, poll don't even believe it's true stuff. It's just kind of made up for moral purposes. Interestingly, the more within this study, it examined a range of different things, but the more someone gathered on Sundays, that is the more they attended what we would call church, uh, even though we know that church is the people, but the more people uh, attended church. Now have a look around you. How, How few people go to church every week? How few people? Many people might go once or twice a month. Others, once or twice every couple of months. How few people go weekly? But what's interesting is that the more they went, the closer they were to weekly gathering on a Sundays. And I might add that the New Testament church gathered daily in the temples and daily house to house. And it's that church that Hebrews 10.25 speaks to when it says, do not forsake the assembling of uh, the believers together for the teaching of the word and for giving praise and worship to God. Do not forsake that assembling. And they were doing it daily in the temple and daily house to house. We can't even do it weekly together. How crazy is that? But what's interesting is that the, the closer these Christians got to uh, gathering weekly, the less likely it is that they would believe the Bible was just fables. So you get that? There's a correlation between how much of the Word was taught to them, or one could argue how much they were in the Word, the less likely they would then believe it was just stories. And there was a massive increase 
catch this, and this is incredible. There's a massive increase in the percentage of those who believed it was the actual word of God and should be taken literally. So the more you're taught the word, the more you're in the word, the more likely it is that you would believe that the Bible is the actual word of God and should be taken literally. I find that fascinating. Thirdly, McCrindle uh, study report on Christianity and church attenders in Australia. And this becomes relevant when we start looking at uh, the truth of the word of God and what we believe in relation to it, but also our biblical worldview. In 1911, uh, there were around 96% of our population that identified as being Christian. 1911, 96%. If you fast forward to 2011, 100 years later, only 61% of the Australian population identified as being Christian. Still, that's a large percentage, but that's a big drop in 100 years. But then look what happens in 10 years. So you go from 96% to 61% in 100 years. And then uh, from 2011 to 2016 in five years, you go from 61% identifying as Christian to 52% identifying as Christian. That's a 9% drop. And then you go another five years to 2021, you go another 9% drop to 43%. So in 100 years, we drop from 96 to 61% Christian. And then in 10 years, essentially the last 10 years, we drop from 61% to 43%, almost 20% drop. So we're now sitting just shy of or around 40% of the population that identify themselves as Christian. That is crazy. We are no longer a Christian nation. What's also interesting is of that 43%, this includes Catholics, which I would argue are not Christian. They're a works-based religion. They're a false religion. That's the Roman Catholic Church. They don't believe in faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. They don't believe the gospel. What I would argue is that there is still a faithful remnant in there. There are still true believers within the Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church, their doctrine, what they teach, teach is not Christian. So this 43% includes Catholics. It includes JWs, which is a cult. It includes Mormons, which is a cult not Christianity. It includes Seventh-day Adventists, which is a cult. It's not Christianity. Don't let someone tell you otherwise. Explore the details of their doctrine and you'll see it's not Christianity. Seventh-day Adventists, Satan is part of the, um, uh, the process of redemption. He's the final scapegoat. Look into that. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, so it includes them and many others. So of that 43%, how many are actually true Christian? Probably not many. This is the apostate church that we find ourselves in right now. Verse 17, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked, Notice how we see ourselves versus how God sees ourselves. The church that God sees today is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And he's talking about spiritually poor here. This is spiritual richness. We have none. That is the apostate church has none. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire. This is talking about and referencing if you go and reference 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, God is the great refiner and he refines the works and they go through the refining fire and only things, uh, only true works with true motivations, only the, the good stuff in us comes out the other side. And this is talking about spiritual richness. Jesus is saying, don't hold on to the physical richness, the earthly richness that you have. You need to come after and chase after the spiritual richness and blessings that, that will pass through the fire 
and come out the other side. That you may be rich spiritually. I added the spiritually. Still verse 18. And white garments, which is the righteousness of Christ and the righteous acts of the saints. The white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Jesus being the great physician will heal us that we may see how the blindfold comes off and the, the Holy Spirit in us will teach us all things. So says the Bible. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Jesus loves us and that is why he rebukes us. It is why he chastens us. So be zealous for him and repent and come back into fellowship with him. Don't be this church. Don't be an apostate. Don't follow the schemes of the devil, the doctrines of demons, which the church is following in this time. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, just going to pause there. This is a wonderful uh, truth of true evangelism. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. If anyone in the whole world hears Jesus' voice and opens the door, he will come into them. Salvation is for everyone for all people. Don't listen to Calvinists who say that only some are chosen by God for salvation. Salvation is for everyone, all times, for any who choose to open the door to Him. But it's also an indictment on the church. Where is Jesus? You notice earlier, Jesus says He's holding uh, the seven stars in His hands. That's the pastors of the seven churches. He's in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. Jesus is in the midst of the churches and has the pastors in his hands. But where is he here? He's not in the midst of the Laodicean church. He is outside the door and the door is closed. That is a, an incredible indictment on the church in the last days. Is Jesus in your church? Is the power of the Holy Spirit in your church. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me to all those who open the door. Now that's a powerful statement. To dine with him in uh, Jewish culture, first century Jewish culture, to dine with someone was to become one with them. We've talked about this before. To become one with them. Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will become one with them. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is the last letter to the seven churches. And what have you heard? Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What has the Spirit said to the churches? Let me summarize by way of personal application to Ephesus. Are you neglecting your priorities, your first works, your first love? If you're in an Ephesus church, are you neglecting your first love, your first works? Your time in the Word, time in prayer, time with God's people. Sharing the gospel of Christ with the world. Are you neglecting your first love? Smyrna, you will come against satanic opposition. In this world, as a believer, you will face satanic opposition. It's the persecuted church. You're going to face that. Hang in there. Stick with it. Keep at it. Pergamos. Don't compromise spiritually. We are in the world, but we are not of it. Don't welcome in uh, the pagan acts or the pagan doctrines or the, the, pagan, the, the teachings of the world, the worldly teachings. The, uh, the, don't pick and choose worldviews. That's Pergamos. Don't let the world in. We need to be in the world, but not of it. Thyatira, are you trapped in these pagan practices? Idolatry. The introduction 
starts to creep in, but are you now trapped in that? Is that fixed in your culture, in your community, in your church? You need to repent and come back into fellowship with God. Sardis, be diligent and watch for our Lord. Hold fast to God's word. Hold fast to God's true word, the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Read it literally. Read it as it is written. Don't just pick and choose. Philadelphia, you have been loyal. The church in Philadelphia, this is the church, guys. This is the one we want to be. A faithful witness, a loyal ambassador. Keeping the word and God will keep us. Laodicea, finally repent and be committed. If you're in apostate, if you're following doctrines of demons, if you're following the ways of the world, don't get caught up in that. Repent and be committed to your Lord and Savior. And if you do these things, if you come back to the Lord, I want to remind you of the promises that God has for you. First of all, they're, they're your promises whether you don't come back or not. If you're in the Lord, if you're a true believer, a born-again believer, these promises are for you. But if you don't repent and come back, you'll be ashamed at His coming and you'll suffer loss when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But if you're not in Christ, if you're not a born-again believer, if you don't know Jesus, then these promises are not for you. These are the promises that Jesus lays out for the true church, that we will get to eat of the tree of life, Ephesus, Smyrna, that we will not face the second death. Pergamos, we'll receive the manna of Christ, the white stone and the new name that allows us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Thyatira, we'll receive power over the nations when we rule and reign with Jesus in the millennial kingdom. Sardis, we will walk with Jesus in white and our names are in the book of life. Philadelphia, you will be a pillar in the temple. Uh, you will be a, a, an eternal fixture in the temple of God. You will have God's name on you, the name of his city on you. Uh, we will be his. He will identify with us and we with him. And finally, Laodicea will sit with him on his throne as he sits with the Father. These are incredible promises for the true believer in Christ. I'm going to finish with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I pray that you'll hear the blessings, the challenges, the rebukes, and the encouragements that God has for the church right now. And right now, moving into next week, we enter the third section of the book, chapters 4 through 22, uh, that chapter 1 verse 19 tells us about the divine outline, the things which must take place after this, after the church age. That's where we're going next week. Thank you so much for joining us um, for another Prophecy Times podcast. We'll see you next week, Wednesday, Lord willing, at 5 p.m. Much love and God bless.